long-awaited invasion was underway. It was not until 7.30 when the 8 o'clock starters began to hurry along that an undercurrent of excitement was evident. By that time, people on the streets were talking animatedly. The atmosphere changed. Under its bright June sun, Washington in general at last became aware that the big day had arrived. I return you now to New York. You have just heard Albert Leach reporting from CBS Washington. For further news on the European invasion, keep tuned to your Columbia station. Portia faces life. 
presented by the makers of Grape Nuts, and Joyce Jordan, presented by the makers of La France and Satina, will not be heard today.
From Columbia's World News Headquarters in New York, we bring you Quincy Howe with news and an analysis of the invasion. Here's some late bulletins that have just recently come in to CBS World News Headquarters here in New York. Allied invasion armies landed in northwestern France today, drove at least nine and a half miles into the Nazi West Wall to the town of Caen, that's C-A-E-N, and after 12 hours of fighting, held beachheads on a broad front along the coast of Normandy. This dispatch comes from Supreme Allied Headquarters in London. Prime Minister Winston Churchill told Commons late today that the invasion is proceeding in a thoroughly satisfactory manner. And simultaneously, a Supreme Headquarters announcement, a Headquarters spokesman, rather, said the American and Allied armies have gotten over the first five or six hurdles in the greatest amphibious assault of all time. The German Transocean News Agency, however, broadcast a statement by a Nazi military spokesman which said that except for the calm beachhead, all the invasion troops had been thrown back toward the sea. The spokesman, this is a German, claimed that the Allied beachhead is only 9 to 12 miles wide and about a mile deep, whereas the Allied invasion headquarters speak of its being 9.5 miles deep. Churchill, making his second appearance of the day in the House of Commons to report on the invasion, said in announcing satisfactory developments, the troops have penetrated in some cases several miles inland, lodgments exist on a broad front. He said Allied forces were fighting inside Caen, nine and a half miles inland and some 30 miles southwest of Le Havre. Earlier Berlin broadcasts reported fighting on both sides of the town, as well as Allied landings all around a broad beach, a broad reach rather, of the Norman coast from the tip of the Cherbourg Peninsula to the Seine estuary. Many dangers and difficulties which at this time, last night, appeared extremely formidable, are behind us, Churchill said. The passage of the sea has been made with far less loss than we apprehended. And then here's a late, late bulletin that comes from London saying that the German-controlled Vichy radio said that violent fighting was taking place on the islands of Guernsey and Jersey west of the Norman Peninsula. The German radio had already announced something about Allied parachute landings on these islands. Well, today's landings in Western Europe have taken the minds of a good many of us off the Japanese. You may be sure the Japanese are not returning the compliment, for the Japanese see two dangers to themselves as a result of this final all-out attack on Germany. First, they can begin to see the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. Indeed, the Japanese, through their connections with the Germans, ought to have more first-hand information than has come our way about Germany's real strength and real weakness. The Japanese also know that the Anglo-American powers have been giving priority to the war against Germany. The war against Japan, we've only just begun to fight. And once the Anglo-American powers are free to bear down exclusively on Japan, we may stay, start to see the beginning of the end of that war, too. The Japanese can therefore be counted on to do their utmost this summer to knock China out of the war, hence their present big offensive, or series of offensives, in southeast China. Japan's one hope is to knock China out of the war before we have knocked out Germany. And today's news from Europe means that the Japs must finish this job, this year rather, a job at which they've labored in vain ever since they attacked Manchuria way back in 1931. And that job is the destruction of the power and the unity of China. The prospect of a German defeat, perhaps this year, is not Japan's only worry in connection with the liberation of Europe. The Japanese also have reason to fear the closer relations between the Anglo-American powers and Russia that are certain to result from successful joint action against Germany. 
until we'd actually committed ourselves to sending large armies to liberate Western Europe, the Japanese could still hope that Anglo-Americans and the Russians might disagree. The Japanese set great store by their neutrality pact with the Russians. They would ask for nothing better than to have that neutrality pact continue to the end of time. As for the Russians, they've had their hands full with the Germans. They could not afford to do more than tie up some Japanese troops by massing some of their own troops on the Manchurian border. If the Russians had gone to war against Japan, they might have lost Moscow, Stalingrad, and Leningrad to the Germans. And we might as well admit it, the Russians have not always believed that the Anglo-American powers had it in them to open the second front in the West that started today. But now that we've opened a new front in Western Europe, the Russians have had far greater confidence, not only in our determination to smash the Germans, but in our ability to wage war. The Russians know we've made headway against the Japanese while we have at the same time prepared for the far greater attack against Germany. From the point of view of self-interest alone, the Russians therefore have every reason to want to play along with Britain and America, not only in the liberation of Europe, but in creating stability in Asia. It's much too early to say how much the Russians will be willing and able to do in the war against Japan. But it's not too early to see what today's events in Western Europe spell out to the Japanese in Eastern Asia. The Anglo-American powers have demonstrated overwhelming power in two major wars and in three elements, land, sea, and air. The Anglo-Americans have also learned how to work and fight in cooperation with the Russians in Western Europe. The Japanese are not so blind to their own welfare and self-interest as to be unable to draw conclusions. It's therefore just as well for us to take a few minutes out today and remember that the landings in Western Europe have also hastened the defeat of Japan. And next, you'll hear from Bill Shirer of CBS World News, who has seen Germany's West Wall and the invasion coast of France where the attacks are coming today. Mr. Shirer. You all undoubtedly have heard a great deal, especially in the last few weeks, about the so-called Atlantic Wall, uh, which the Germans have erected to stop our invasion. And in the next few days, we're going to test to see whether that Atlantic Wall is as strong as German propaganda has made it out to be. As a matter of fact, while the Germans have erected strong defenses here and there along the long coastline in Western Europe, the truth is that the ballyhoo about the Atlantic Wall has been largely a product of German propaganda. Mr. Churchill, in his first address to the Commons today, spoke of the underwater uh, barriers being overcome easy, easier than had been expected. Uh, three years ago, up on that Channel Coast, I had a look at some of uh, those barriers. Uh, they consisted mostly of... Uh, steel contraptions put in two lines for the tides, one out two or three hundred yards from shore and one maybe within 50 yards of shore, and which were designed to stop landing boats from coming up on the beach. The way to get at those, of course, is by torpedoes and exploding your own mines. And so far, as we can see, our troops do not seem to have had a great deal of difficulty in overcoming these underwater barriers. Now, there have been pictures in our papers, uh, which have come from German sources, showing great underground forts along the coast of France. And while undoubtedly some of those do exist, I saw some of them 
uh, three years ago or so. Uh, they have been greatly over-exaggerated, and there are not a large number of these underground forts. I was interested yesterday in hearing a broadcast from the leading German uh, military commentator, Lieutenant General Dittmar, who serves as a spokesman for the German general staff. Now, probably he knew within the last two or three days that an invasion was imminent, and he went on the air a day or two ago in Berlin to more or less uh, warn his own people that the term Fortress Europe, or as the Germans say, Festung Europa, uh, was not such a great thing as Dr. Goebbels had led them to believe. He said, for example, I have noted down some notes from his broadcast, I have always refrained, he said, from use of the term Festung Europa, or the Fortress Europe, as much as possible, because, this German general explains, it might give rise to rather misleading conceptions which could not do justice to the special conditions and standards of this war. It suggests, he says, too much the idea of narrowness and isolation. And he goes on to say that if one speaks of the fortress of Europe, this can be applied only in a figurative sense. In other words, what seems plain, and I think what we will see in the next few days and weeks in the fighting in northwestern Europe, is that there has been no such thing as a great European fortress, and no such thing as a great Atlantic wall, but merely groups of German uh, fortifications, uh, largely made up of mines and so-called strong points, which the German called Schwerpunkt, along strategic highways and ridges, uh, which they will use in stopping our, trying to stop our troops. I always think when we hear this propaganda, and undoubtedly you'll hear a great deal if the German propaganda gets to you in the next few days about the Atlantic Wall, that the Germans themselves have never believed in the idea of a chain of forts, a fortified line such as the Maginot Line, stopping uh, a good army. When I went through Poland with the German army, and later when I went through the Western Campaign just uh, four years ago this very month, uh, the German officers, the, their generals, the high command, uh, were confident that no fortifications which men could erect in our time could stop them. And I've always had the idea that now, when it's our turn to attack, the Germans were never confident that they could stop us with fortifications. So much for the talk about the Atlantic Wall. The only way the Germans will halt us or slow us up is through their armies fighting in the field. And now we bring you once more Quincy Howe. Here are some more news bulletins that have come in during the past few minutes. The Transocean News Agency of Berlin in a broadcast today said that the Allies had established a 15-mile front from a mile to half a mile deep between Villiers-sur-Mer, and Trouville. This area is about seven miles south of the big port of Le Havre, where a transatlantic liner is docked in the pre-war days, and it takes in the beach resort area of Deauville. And from London, the Allied air activity, already at a record peak, reached new heights this evening when swarms of fighters and bombers roared overhead toward the continent, 
wrapping the London area in an unending drone of powerful motors. And more details on this, the 10,000 tons of bombs cleared the way for the Allied army which invaded Europe today. And as the attacking planes swept through the French sky, only 50 German planes rose to oppose them. Allied aircraft ruled the skies not only over the invasion beaches, but also far inland. The first official reports of the greatest aerial operation of the war said that the Allies made 7,500 sorties between midnight and 8 a.m. In Parliament, Prime Minister Churchill said that an armada of 11,000 first-line planes sustained the assault. The 7,500 sorties between midnight and 8 a.m. did not take into account the hail of bombs, rockets, and bullets that crashed down upon the French coast in the hours following. During the period covered by the report, more than a 1,000 British heavy bombers filled the night with thunder, and at dawn, the American 8th Air Force sent more than a 1,000 of our heavies into the air. You've heard news and analyses of the invasion by William L. Shirer and Quincy Howe. For complete coverage of the invasion, keep tuned to your Columbia station. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Young Dr. Malone, presented by the makers of Post Toasties, will not be heard today. Until further bulletins on the invasion are received, we'll present a program of unannounced music.
CBS World News, which is bringing you the latest information from the French invasion beaches, will interrupt this program immediately to broadcast any news or special programs from abroad. We now rejoin the special music program.
This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The adventures of Perry Mason, presented by the makers of Came Soap, will not be heard today. Instead, we bring you more news of the invasion of Western Europe. One of the latest reports comes from the British radio, which said that the invasion line is now sufficiently broad to be considered more than a bridgehead. Now for the news direct from overseas, we take you to London, Merrill Muller reporting. Hello, NBC, American broadcasters. I'm, I'm switching to you in about 20 seconds. Here it comes. Stand by. Okay. This is London at 8.45 p.m. In a moment, we hope to establish contact with the American radio reporter, Merrill Muller, covering General Eisenhower's headquarters, somewhere in England. Go ahead, Merrill Muller. This is Robert Barr speaking from Advanced Allied Command Post on the 6th of June. This is the stat... This is London again. There's been a slight delay in getting the broadcast just announced. One moment, please. By Duncan... One moment, please. At this time, we are attempting to establish contact with the American radio reporter, Merrill Muller, covering General Eisenhower's headquarters. One moment, please. In a few moments, we hope to establish contact with our reporter with General Eisenhower's headquarters. In the meantime, will the American networks start programming from New York and await a call from London? We bring you now the latest dispatches on the invasion. The German Transocean News Agency said tonight that the Allied offensive area 
has been extended to the entire Norman Peninsula. Ninth Air Force Troop Carrier Base, England. American Indians in full war paint, dropping silently from the skies to strike with the deadly stealth of their ancestors, were among the first paratroop units to go into action. They were members of an engineer's demolition unit, the Braves. They wore red and black war paint and had their heads shaved except for scalp locks. In training, they had taken the name the Filthy Thirteen. Except for their heads, they were a far cry from their ancestors. Each carried enough equipment to sustain himself in the field until his mission was accomplished and to care for wounds. One staff sergeant, a full-blooded Yaki, carried 180 pounds packed on his 183-pound frame. Other members of the Filthy Thirteen were Yaquis and Cherokees. They were part of the greatest airborne operation in history, which apparently caught German defenses by surprise. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the man who set H.R. and D-Day. President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill approved the battle plans at Quebec in August 1943, but selecting the exact time was left to the Supreme Commander. This was stated today in a 37-page unofficial invasion summary written by British officers and released by the War Office. The summary revealed that Roosevelt and Churchill agreed at Casablanca early in 1943 to knock Italy out of the war before invading France, even though they knew this would delay the Western assault until 1944. We've been trying to establish contact with Merrill Muller, radio reporter uh, at uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower's headquarters in London. However, in London, it was impossible uh, at the moment to establish contact with Mr. Muller. Until further bulletins on the invasion are received, we'll present a program of unannounced music.
take you now to London, Merrill Muller reporting. We regret that we're unable again to contact Merrill Muller. Until such time as we can, we continue our program of music. After station identification, we hope to bring you an address by His Majesty King George VI of Great Britain. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> 